Welcome to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to share their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. And I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Our guest this week is Latoya Robinson, who came on to tell us about becoming a young mother and how she rose to the occasion to provide the best life for her daughter. She also shares her experience as a black woman in corporate America and her insights on playing the quote-unquote game. On top of her job as a manager for a successful financial services company, Toya is also a top-ranked realtor in the city of Atlanta. Lots of wisdom and perspective to be gained from this conversation. So here's Toya. All right, so before we start recording, you were telling me you, uh, you did something to your hair. What, what's the story behind your hair? So, all right, so I'll stop. So when Paul and I worked at a mutual company, we'll just leave it like that, right? So this goes right into, as you all know, like black people's hair, it does different things. So I never truly, and it goes back to me really being comfortable with who I am in this point in my life. So never would I ever picture myself just being natural, right? So I usually straighten my hair. So at the company Paul and I used to work for, myself, another um, manager that was black, she used to wear a wig, but she had dreads under her hair. And I was like, why do you wear that god-awful wig? And she was like, they wouldn't go for the dreads. Like, I probably wouldn't get the job because of the dreads. And I'm like, okay, look, next week, you're going to take the wig off. I'm going to wear my hair natural. And she's like, I'm like, yeah, like, what are they going to say? We're going to do it. So she's like, okay. So another young lady that worked there, she was like, me too. So of course she takes the wig, the wig off and she has these dreads and she gets the stares, but no one really says anything, at least not openly. I walk into a morning meeting and I think my hair was probably just like this, maybe even a little bigger. And a older, I'm not going to say names, but afterwards, if you don't remember the story, I'll tell you. One of the older white men that worked there said, literally, it's like HR is in there all the leaderships, the CEO, everybody's in this boardroom, my hand of God. I walk in and he turns around and he goes, what did you do to your hair, Latoya? Put it in a socket? It's big. And I go, oh, it's big? Is it offending you? And so everybody looks and HR is like, in front of me? You're going to do that in front of me? And I'm like, guys, come down. It's, it's okay. Like, it's a shock to him. I'm like, yes, my hair can do this. And so we continue with the meeting. But the crazy part about it is, I promise you, I got like 10 emails. Are you okay? Do you want me to say something to him? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. Like, it is a culture shock for him. It is a shock for probably him to see me like this. So it's okay. He was shocked and he did apologize. So I said, you know what? Since I'm going to be talking to Paul and, you know, we're going to talk about different touchy things, I'll just, you know, spice it up to make, make sure I have big hair. I love it. <laughs> And Paul, was, and Paul was laughing, but he didn't know if it was okay to laugh, but he was laughing. And I was like, I expected this, right? So the young lady with the dreads, she was like, oh, I'm like, it's okay. Like, I'm expecting this. They don't know what to do. They're all white men. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> Clash of generations and uh, ages. Yeah, absolutely. And cultures, yeah. Yeah, and now you would be surprised. And I mean, that was what, two years ago. Now natural hair is everywhere like at the company everybody has it and it's not a it's not as shocking but i think still for me if i was to wear my hair like this to work it would be shocking if they uh, were able to embrace it i think people 
regardless of what they do for a living, whether it's a big company or a small company, they work for themselves or otherwise, they should be themselves. Yeah, I def I agree. I definitely agree. And that's easy to say, but I know for myself, that was very hard. And I find now like it's not like I'm so comfortable in my own skin. But when someone says just be yourself, it's really hard to be yourself when you're trying to find your place and fit in and force that seat at the table. Do you know what I mean? Especially in corporate America when you're driving your career and everyone at that table doesn't look like you, doesn't have those common things in you. So it is really hard to just be yourself. No, I, I, absolutely. Um, it's hard for everybody, right? Because we all have doubts. We all have uh, differences and we wonder how our differences are being assessed and judged and what that means to our careers, what that means to our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, but we're not going to go to uh, you as a black woman in corporate America just yet. Let's back up. So being a single mom, uh, how old was your daughter when you became a single mom? So my ex-husband and I separated when Ty was 16 years old. And that was a really, really trying time. Because again, I grew up with him. I grew up with his family. And now here I am separating. And none of us knew, do we separate from all of us? Do we just separate these two? And then just coming from at this point, we had accumulated things, right? Like, we, we were okay financially, and here I am like, I'm leaving. So I leave with my daughter's bedroom suit and a couple of boxes, and that's it. So I leave, and I move into a little townhouse by my, or with myself and my daughter. And it was a hard adjustment for her, but this is one thing I will say to any parent, any mom, any dad, like on the fence about divorce. Like, no, I'm not pro-divorce. Like, make it work. I'm totally pushed through. But when your kids know and feel it, you're doing your children a disservice because I just recall when I made that decision, my daughter goes, oh, thank God, mom. So now she has like the best of both worlds. She has a happy whole mother that can nurture her and focus on her instead of running, running from what's going on in the house. And she has a father who could focus on her instead of focusing on bickering with her mom. So I just, you know, sometimes that was a really hard adjustment for me because keep in mind, I've been with him since I was 15 years old. I've been with his family since I was 18 and I had no family of my own in Richmond, Virginia. So it was a very hard time for me, but I had great friends and his family loves me. Like I said, they still love me more than him and they were there. Like, so yeah, that was really hard. And just Sam, being a single mom, I absolutely was a single mom, but I still always had that village to support me. Well, you are a much stronger person for those experiences, Toya. I, I agree. I definitely agree. And I say that, you know, because of those decisions, it allows me to move the way that I move now. It makes me be a little bit fierce, a little bit more, you know, able to be who I am without worrying about the judgment. Um, because I feel like, hey, if I could step away from that security, and fall as low as I did because even the craziest part, like I leave my husband, my husband, I leave, can we say company name? Uh, sure. I leave Verizon making $80,000 a year and I go back to my safe place at another big company that Paul and I both worked with, starting back from ground zero, making $25,000 a year and I'm by myself with a child trying to figure it out. So it definitely made me who I was. And it let me know that I'm strong and I could overcome adversity by myself. No doubt. And uh, Toya, the, we won't say the name of that other big company you and I worked <laughs> for, but it's a big bank in Richmond that we're sure nobody will figure out. Everybody wants to be there. <laughs> <laughs>
It, it, it was a good company. I, I don't it have is. To, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And to that, like that big company, truly, truly, that legacy has allowed me to flourish the way that I am. So regardless of the politics through corporate America, there are some places that just really, really make you who you are. I met some of the best, two of the best people in my life to this day, no matter where I go, I know that they will always ensure that there's a place for me in some place, corporate America. So I, that big company gave me two of the best people in my life. Tell us about those two people. So one person is, you all may have interviewed him already, is Tom Greco. So oh, at first, I could not stand Tom. Like, <laughs> oh my God, like seriously. And you have to bring us back on. He got on my nerves so bad. We started on the phone. And if anyone that knows him, he is a talker. Me, when I'm in business mode, I'm about business. Like, let's get these sales. So Tom used to sit in front of me, and I used to sit on the other side of Tom. They had to get him this long cord. And I was like, why are y'all catering to him? He needs to sit down like everyone else. But if he was walking and pacing the floor, he made sales. So they got him this long cord, and he would walk from one end of the building to the next. And he would just talk, and he just... His New York accent would get heavier and heavier. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this dude drives me crazy. And he would always be number one. I would be number two. I'll be number one. Then he'll come and work extra hours so he could be number one. And I'm just like back and forth. But he taught me so much about business, about loyalty in business, honestly, how to play the game, like where to position yourself. He's, Tom has definitely been a force in my life and in my career and in his wife. And like, I just love the Grecos. So that's one person. And then Ron Gregory, like, have you all interviewed Ron? No. Not you yet. Ron. He's this cool dude, comes from old money, U of R grad, but he's so down to earth. You would never know that was his background. And he just took to me. He was like, you know what? Like, you got it. I'm going to give you everything you need. Like, I know you're going to work hard for me. I could put you in front of people. And we made magic together. And he took me everywhere he went. And he just showed me how to interact. And he was very strategic about the moves that he made. And honestly, Ron is the reason I'm in Atlanta. Ron, he seen me in the big bank and I was missable. And he was like, it's not what it used to be, huh? And I'm like, nah. He was like, you want to move to Atlanta? I was like, yeah. He said, all right. He was like, Tom's going to call you tonight. And Tom called me and that's how it happened. <laughs> the two guys uh, made it happen. Yeah, like they, and that's why I always say, like, sometimes you don't have to look like each other. You don't have to come from the same backgrounds, any of those things. When people are genuine people, they hold tight to that. And those are two friendships that I cherish so dearly. Um, tell, so it sounds like from that story in the boardroom that you're sort of fearless. And that was two years ago. So I'm wondering if you've always been that fearless. And if not, you know, take us back to like your beginnings in corporate America and, and how you develop that sense of self and that ability to advocate for yourself like you did. Sure. So no, Daniel, I wasn't always this fierce. I think that I know for sure that it came over the last two years. So I'll tell you a pivotal moment in my career as a woman and as a black woman. So at the big bank that we worked with, I was standing up a whole new department. Like they sought after me. They knew I could do the job. They knew I had the background and I did it. And we were successful at it. So it was me and another young lady um, that were running the show. Like literally we moved hundreds of agents out of brick and mortar into a work from home space. 
And when everything was said and done, it was time to start moving up that corporate ladder, right? So from there, they brought somebody else in and they gave her the promotion over me and I had to teach her everything, everything. And that moment, it became combative for me because everything I said, it was like I was being defensive. And she would say the same things and do the same things and it was passion. And it was, she really knows her stuff. She's a go-getter. We can count on her. Like she drives it. But if it was the same behaviors and the same outputs from myself, it became like, she's aggressive. You know, she's defensive. She's hard to work with. And for me, I would see it, but I would really, really start to become insecure with myself. Like, God, like, am I this person? Like, what happened before she came? Like, I was doing good. This is the toy they wanted. This is what they needed. This is what made it happen. This is what made us successful. And I looked back and I started talking to other people and the people reporting to me was like, God, like, why are they doing this? Like, every time you do something, they'll cut you off. They do this, they'll do that. And it was time to promote. And I had shown everything and, you know, corporate America is politics. So you play the game and you network and you get people to advocate for you and jump mm -hmm. on all of those great things. And I felt like I had that package. And when it was time to move forward, they said, you know, we know you can do the job and you've done a really great job for us for the last five years, but we're going to move such and such because she has a master's degree. And I was like, but I've just taught her everything. Mm -hmm here for six months and her master's degree qualifies her and they were like yeah but you're doing a great job just keep it up you know mid-year and I was like yeah this this isn't this isn't right and I just found myself competing against another woman one I was not not comfortable with and two I was becoming really insecure in myself so I was like oh I gotta go back to school I never want to hit this ceiling again I never want someone to hold this piece of paper over my head like, and I really started putting these pressures on me and I wasn't performing at work anymore. And I wasn't performing in my personal life anymore. And I wasn't being the friend and mother that I wanted to be. So corporate America hasn't always been good to me. And I, I haven't always been this force to be reckoned with or very, you know, confident as I am today. Um, so I think that was a really, really hard time in corporate America for me. Um, so, so they brought in somebody else basically alongside you. And then you noticed sort of a double standard growing out of that. And then that person rose through the ranks faster. Yeah. And the, so here's the thing. If I would have just noticed it, I probably would have did some self-checking and just moved on. But other people were noticing it. Other mm -hmm. people at higher levels, like they were calling on me to do the work and she was calling on me to do the work. But if I said it or if I did it or I drove it, it was like, why didn't you run that past me? But she can do it. So it was just a real double standard there. Um, and then, like I said, it became, it really made me become insecure. And um, even when I first got to this place I am, you know, when I moved to Atlanta, I still had some of those insecurities. But of course, like my buddy Tom, <laughs> he, he really made sure that he was like, you know what, look, you got to do your job. You got to perform. He was like, but I got you. Like, I'm going to get you through this. Like, I'm going to help you navigate these waters. And he gave me that confidence to get back in my groove and to be able to perform again. Not saying that I didn't make mistakes or like I didn't bump heads and those relations. And I didn't ruin some relationships, but I would start to become very confident in who I was and what I knew. Do you feel like it's, that's made you strong? Like, let's say that you never had to go up against that sort of, um, you know, mistreatment. Do you, do you think that it's made you stronger? 
uh, in the end, even though, you know, it shouldn't have happened, you know, the way that you were treated, uh, you know, it's like not fair, but do you think that it's, that you've come out the other end, like as uh, better as, as a, as a person, as a businesswoman for it? I do. So I look back and I still keep in contact with some friends and I look back and I look at, you know, the things that's going on and where they are in their career. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you. Like it really made me a better person. Like, thank you for showing me who and how to, who you were, number one, but like, it wasn't me. So it reassured me that I didn't need certain things because in Richmond, that one place is the place to work to me and that's when I was there but if I didn't have that it really started defining me and so I was glad that they pushed me out of the nest kind of not that it was fair and life isn't fair and I get it um but I definitely feel that now I know to stand up for myself and it's okay as a woman to be aggressive because guess what in the boardrooms all day long men are slamming tables and cussing and as a woman like I may not cuss and slam tables but I can have that same passion to get the same result um and so it did definitely help, you know, help me to build the, to get that confidence back up. Nice. So Toya, you said two years ago, you really uh, found your momentum, found your fierceness. Did something happen two years ago? I think that this is funny. So the umbilical cord was cut kind of sort of, right? So Tom left me, right? And then like other people started leaving. That was my security. And it was a whole new world per se and I felt confident that I knew what they needed to move us where we needed to be um I felt like I had great tools I had great people to give me that um and I really didn't care I didn't care as much so when I worked for like Tom like I really cared because I couldn't let him down I couldn't disappoint him but now I'm like okay like Mm going to say this and this is the way it should be and I'm going to be fair and I'm going to work hard but I don't care what you think of me I care that you respect me I care that you treat me fairly I care that you work with me with integrity and we create partnership and boundaries right and I've learned for myself not to be so personally attacked so if Paul would get upset at me or Tom would get upset and something would go wrong it would weigh heavy on me but if something goes wrong now I'm really able to leave it where it is and pick it back up tomorrow because I don't have those personal ties there. And I think that's where that pivotal moment was of why these last two years, I've really been able to stand on my own because I don't have the personal ties and the, there's no one that I'm worried about pleasing because those personal relationships are no longer there. That makes sense. So your fierceness was mostly born out of Tom Greco basically leaving Atlanta. I think that my, I think it was born out of knowing that I had everything I needed to succeed and I didn't have to worry about the personal piece. No, that's mm. a great answer to you. And I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You, thank you. you um, talked about like this, you've talked about, you referred to an idea of a, of a village several times. And then you're also ta- you've also talked about the importance of standing on your own two feet and being competent in yourself like as an individual to be able to get a job done like can you comment on those two things you know on on the one hand you need a bunch of people on the other hand it's you and independence so I definitely feel us all so I say this all the time my daughter's the only child and her biggest thing is I don't need anyone I know how to self suit I don't need friends and I'm like Jesus had friends honey only on his own when he hung on the cross his friends took him to the cross if we remember the story so it really takes a village right so 
even though Tom's not here or Paul's not here and those that bill is Ron's not here. I can get on the phone today and be like, oh my God, like, I don't know how to start this. And that village is going to be there and they're going to take the time. And then I can stand on my own because I've had that support. And I think like, that's for anyone. We can all act like we have it together. But at the end of the day, this world is just like a game. The only game that is by yourself, the only sport by yourself is track. And even then you have a referee and you have someone blowing a whistle. So I really relate life to sports. So football, there's, there is a quarterback. We know the role of the quarterback and he does his role and he steps back. And I just feel like, yes, you stand on your own and you play your position, but it takes us all to be successful. Yeah, I like that. So I'm having, I want to like try to wrap my, my mind around the whole timeline of your career. So you left for Richmond when you were just out of, out of high school, basically. And you so were no. instantly... So, okay, so here's my career. So I started working in Richmond in 96 at the Big Bank. And I left the Big Bank. I worked at the Big Bank from 96 all the way up to 2010. And I left 2010 to go to Verizon. 2010 to 2012, I worked at Verizon. Then I went back to the Big Bank. And then from the Big Bank, I moved here to Atlanta 2016. Uh, you were there before me, right? 15, 16, 14, 2014, 2014, yeah. 14, 14. Yes, 2014. And Atlanta is where you met Paul. So, yeah, I never crossed paths with, I've crossed paths with Paul at the Big Bank, but never on an intimate setting piece. Like, we crossed paths, we may have worked on something here or there, but never, like, worked directly with him, created a relationship with him, any of those things. Well, it's par partially born out of what you experienced, Daniel. I, I'm, I'm a, a lot to take the first couple of months, so people uh, have a tough time getting to know me initially. <laughs> That's just the whole facade, though. Like, I'm telling you, when you get to know Paul and he lets that down, he's, like, such the coolest, easiest person. Like, yeah. Oh, I, I know. That little exterior there is the fake exterior. And then you start talking about that middle baby girl of his. You <laughs> you <laughs> You got him. Like, that's it. That one, he loved all the kids. But that middle one? She's, she's something. So let me tell you. So at first, I didn't work for Paul. And then things changed. And I had to work for Paul. And I literally sat in his office and cried. I did not want to work for Paul. Paul was mean. Paul was, like, so nasty. And he had so much dang power. That was the problem. So if he, was, if he didn't write off on it, it didn't get done. Like, he was the go-to for this, 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 this. And I used to do process improvement. And I needed to, I had a deadline. And Paul's like very strategic, very little, very logical. And he wants to look at every comma, every period. And I'm like, Paul, we got to get this out. And he was like, I'm not writing off on it. Set a meeting, set a meeting. So then, of course, Tom's like, boy, stop pushing Paul. Like, that's really upsetting him. And like, he's really getting aggravated with you. Stop pushing him. Like, he'll get the pr procedure to you. And I'm like, no, like, I got a deadline. So I'm still pushing, still pushing. And then Paul's like, God damn it. I said, I'm, so I was like, oh, I don't like him. I don't ever want to talk to him. Like, he cusses at people. This, this, this. That's so unprofessional. If I cussed at him, I'll be fired. So, like, I was all on a tangent. And I didn't work for him still. So then they were like, so you're going to have to start reporting to Paul Gilman. And I was like, I don't want to work for him. He's rude. He's, he 
call me emotional. Like, <laughs> wow. Yes. So I remember there being a story of, of Paul. Um, somebody kept asking him to sign a document and you would always sit there and take forever to sign it. Were you there for any of those? She's, she's seen my, uh, my delaying tactics for my own amusement. Yes. Okay. All right, cool. Yes. Not smiling when we're talking, while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you, you guys came out on the other side of that pretty, pretty good. Yes. Like Paul was the, he was the easiest manager to work with. Like do what you need to do. Don't start dang fires. If a fire is starting, let him know so he could put it out, get in front of it. And that was it. That's all he asked. Like get, do the right thing. Like, and that's the one thing I really like about Paul. Like he is about do the right thing, even if it goes against the grain. I remember like my team really wanted to work from home and nobody wanted to get them laptops. He was like, Toya, the laptops cost $200 each. I don't give a F. He was like, get the laptops, let them work from home if that's going to help their morale. And I was like, they already said no. He was like, I said, get the laptops. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Boom. Big man. <laughs> Uh, yep. so Toya, where, um, in, when you're in like a professional environment, where do you feel that you're most effective? What sort of environment? Where I can strategically be a visionary, right? So I don't want, I can't, I cannot focus and be my best self if somebody's micromanaging me and trying to dictate it. Um, I like to have input. I like to be able to think of things holistically and the whole picture, not just what we're doing now. So I really do not flourish in areas that are just very streamlined. Like where I am now, it's so many fires, I like it. So I am that firefighter um, and I like to fix things. So I really, I, that's where I flourish and that's where my strongest, my where I add the most value to an organization is figuring it out. And I like people, so I like to be of service. So if I'm making things better for the people in the, in the organization, like that really, really like sits well with myself. So for somebody that like isn't super familiar with corporate America, when you talk about fires, what does that mean? So that <laughs> fires can mean different things in corporate America. So like when you're growing a business or if it's a medium sized business and you're trying to put things in place, um, you're trying to plug this hole where the, your bank partners may need something, but yet and still operations doesn't work like that. Or you have your people in product rolling out a new product and that product messes up what's happening in your call center and nobody understands because they didn't talk to it. So you become the firefighter, right? You're like, okay, guess what? We're going to open these lines up so the customers can still call in. Product's going to have to roll that back and then we'll talk about it on the back end. So you're just moving different pieces just to keep the business afloat. Um, and that happens a lot when there's things aren't streamlined, meaning there's no documentation, there's no policy, and really there's no communication because everybody's working in their little silo. So just being, I like to be collaborative and I like to understand the business because mm -hmm. when one arm moves, the other arm is going to move and we don't know what that outcome is going to be until you're starting to fight those fires. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's like a, there's an element of chaos that's shared between fighting real fires and putting out corporate fires because the solution isn't always like you can just look in a book and say, oh, here's how to put out a fire. You, yeah. have, to, you have to think on your feet and figure out what the solution is going to be. I like that corporate chaos instead of fires. That's, that's exactly what it is, corporate chaos. And everybody wants what they want, right? So that mm. creates chaos. So that <laughs> you and Daniel could co-author a book called Corporate Chaos. <laughs> 
Dude, nobody would read that book. I don't, the, we, need, we need to spice the title up, I think. Yes, you just spice it up, Daniel. I'm still a visionary. <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, I, I would like to point out that uh, Toya's daughter is one year younger than you, Daniel. Uh, wow. <laughs> so Toya could be my mom. I could be your mom. Damn, thanks, Daniel. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, hang on. Because there was a good segue there to the game. Everybody wants something, right? Everybody yeah. wants to get theirs, whatever that means. And there's the game that you mentioned. What's the game to you? And, and has it interfered with your ability to add value to organizations? So, I think that honestly, I just learned how to play the game. And that's after all these years in corporate America, I'm really learning. Usually for women, and not all women, but a lot of times women starting their career early on, we are women by nature, right? So if you think about it, women are nurturers. We're all over the place. There's a lot of options. So when a little girl plays with a dollhouse, ooh, we could go to the kitchen. We could go to the bathroom. We could go here. But when a little boy is playing with his truck, he's driving the truck to a result. He wants to get through the dirt and the ground. So I think like for me, when you think about organized sports, like I said, everybody has a role in a position and there's four quarters to, to whatever sport, or there's an end time, right? So I think like playing the game knows when, what quarter you're in and where, what and what, what you need to do in each quarter. And for me, playing the game, it's just come to me that it is a game. I mean, it doesn't mean like that's not being honest and being who you are, but it's just knowing when to fold them, knowing what your role is, knowing when to step up. I found myself a lot of times doing a lot of volunteering. Oh, I can do that. I'll help you with that. Let me help you. Sure, let's pull up after the meeting. And when you do a lot of volunteering, that's again, when does it end? What quarter are you in? Who's leading it? Who's accountable? Um, but if you're just being strategic about the way that you move, the things that you're doing, and knowing where you are and where you add value, I think that's how to play the game and be successful in corporate America. And I've just learned that, right? So I know that I add value supporting the people. And I add value thinking ahead of being the holistic approach. I find myself working with a lot of people that see like right here, but they're not thinking about, hey, if we do this, this is all going to happen. So I find value in saying, hey, we're in, this is the second quarter of the game. I need to, I need to support the people this way by showing you how to move and what the outcome is going to be on the other side so we can get to the third quarter. Um, so just being, a, being able to support the people, and when I say the people, it's the people that are doing the work. And I think that's how you're successful when you play the game of corporate America, because when you support the people doing the work instead of the people calling at the top, you're going to get the results. Mm. So it sounds like there's, there's a combination of thinking in stages of like time, not just thinking, you know, what am I going to do today? Because I think right. there are people that live, live in the first quarter like, you know, they go to work and feel helpful every day saying, I'll help with that. I'll help with that. I'll help yeah. with that. And then they wake up five years later and nothing's really changed. Um, there's a combination between that and, and then also, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right, Dan. You're right. So like those people, me going to work, I'll do that. I'll do that. And I'll do that. And then I get time for my end of year result or it's time to move or it's time for promotion. And I'm not there because I'm not in the second quarter because I didn't set myself up to pass the ball or get to the next level because I'm too busy volunteering. 
right that's where i that's where i've learned the most of guess what everybody is moving strategically and that's where you have to start thinking in football guess what you're not going to play the fourth quarter like you paid the first quarter you're not going to do it because there's more at stake and it's about to come to an end you can't waste as much time and it can happen and i think sometimes we forget there's four quarters we give so much in the first quarter by the end of the quarter it's nothing to give I just I really like that analogy um, because it's think, thinking in terms of, of time and, and sort of thinking backwards from, you know, here's the result. We want to have won the game. Now let's go backwards to where we are now. And here's everything coming up to then. Um, the qu- a question I have is uh, to what extent do you work as a team to get things done and play the game in that way where it's more of a collaborative and, and team-based exercise? And to what extent is it I need to – look out for myself and I'm competing directly with other people and have it be sort of a competitive atmosphere. And how do you balance those two things? So I can be very transparent when I say this. I never feel that I'm competing against people. This, someone told me this a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about someone that really, really feels they're ready for a promotion. You know that you're ready when everyone else around you knows. And you can't be ready by yourself. So I don't care how great you are how competitive you are. But if you're playing by yourself and you're doing everything by yourself, you're never, ever, ever going to win. You're not. So I don't compete in that aspect. I feel like if I am looking at things holistically and bringing other people around me, that's making impact, that's going to change, that's going to get results, and that's going to get us to the end. So I feel like when I am able to share and collaborate um, with people, that's how I prefer to play the game. Mm. I play by myself. I think there's a there's like an illusion of individualism where you got to be all on your own and you have to be the one to, to do everything for yourself. And I used to feel that way. And I used to really think like, oh, I can do it. I can do it going back to volunteering, right? But guess what? I may not know how to do it. And if I'm doing too much, I'm not giving you 100%. And now I volunteer, but I'm still accountable for that, whatever I messed up. And sometimes you do that to yourself and you don't even know what you're doing you stop yeah did you feel like you had a higher mountain to climb than most being a black woman in corporate america as opposed to being i guess a white guy like us <laughs> so, so i absolutely think women as a whole have a, a harder mountain to climb and it shows in the numbers right so you look at how many sea level women there are and then to put a woman then a black woman yeah right then and a black woman an outspoken black woman that's not gonna be part of the good old boys, right? So I'm not gonna talk to Pa and Tom of them about 15th century history and Germany and all the stuff they used to talk about. I'm like, okay. So I'm not going to drink bourbon with them, right? So that's really where your corporate career flourishes. When you're sitting across the table drinking bourbon or you're playing golf, um, when you're having these different conversations. I didn't have those I don't have those opportunities, but what I feel that as I climbed the corporate ladder where I've been able to be successful and leverage, that is building mutual ground, right? So, for example, with Paul, I, he respects me and my work, but I think that he respects me as a person because he can tell, guess what? She's authentic. She's genuine. So that's the one I want on my team, and I can trust her to get us to the end of the line, right? Um, I think as a woman, a lot of times, 
we don't, we can't play the game like men play it. So if I sat at the table and said, cussed and threw a fit at the boardroom, they'll be looking at me like, she's the angry black woman. Like, oh my God, what is going on here? And that's really the perception. Even as a woman, if we get upset or we give snarky remarks, it's taken personal. But the funny thing about it is men can do it all day at the table. The meeting's over and they're still friends. But I've seen it. I've been part of it. I've experienced it. I can give the snarky remark. I can get a little rude and brash. And then it's like, she's emotional. Like, you need to talk to her. And I'm like, okay, but you guys just went on a whole tangent and cussed each other out and threw things at each other and broke out in a sweat. But I said this little thing and now we need to have a whole 30-minute conversation about the way that I conducted myself. So, yes, I definitely feel that it's a harder mountain to climb as a woman, but as a Black woman, that's even a harder mountain to climb. And a lot of times, I think even our backgrounds don't come together. So as we know, statistics show like African-Americans come from a larger population of broken homes and our different struggles put us at a different disadvantage. So we don't have the same experience that we can share to build those relationships. And when I say that, I want to make sure we understand it's not an excuse, right? So I'm not using this as an excuse, but I'm sharing with you all the experience that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. I said earlier on, I used to be ashamed of my struggles because Paul didn't have those struggles, right? He married his wife. They had kids. Tom didn't have those struggles, even though he came from a more, you know, a little bit of less fortunate um, situation, but he had his mom and dad and he grew up with his sisters and they had that family bond. He didn't come from those types of things. His wife wasn't a teenage mom. So just those things alone, definitely, I felt, put stepping stones to make that mountain a little bit harder. Yeah, that was a wonderful answer, uh, Toya. And I'll say it's it's made even stronger by the fact you said you're not making excuses because you're not a victim, right? Oh, no. (laughs) <laughs> that's that no. is the worst place to be regardless of your background regardless of your life experiences being the victim whether it's climbing the corporate ladder or just being successful and, and feeling good about yourself the last place you want to be is the victim so I, I applaud you for saying that absolutely and I think like for me that's one of the reasons I work so hard to make sure my daughter was put in a position so when she sits in corporate America she can have those experience right so when they talk about how they went skiing oh, I went skiing too, or they went to Greece. She can say those same things. Mm. The reason we put her in private school, you know, because we wanted her not to have those struggles. And like Paul said, it's not a victim mentality at all. Like I wouldn't change anything that happened to me because it happened for me. And I am who I am today. Like I've been very successful in corporate America. I'm very successful in my career as a real estate agent, you know. I've had very successful relationships. I have my own little business where I help women with their careers in corporate America. So definitely not a victim. I took all of those stones and blocks and I built myself and I brought people along with me. Tell us your endeavor to help women in business. Tell us more about so, that. It's help women and overall, but I um, volunteer for, this is a very large organization. It's called Jobs for Life. Basically what Jobs for Life is, it's a program where you go and get trained to be a career coach. And what you can use this in different parts of the world. Some people create nonprofits for it. But what I did is I got certified and I started working with a church. And I went into rehabilitation centers for women. These are women like, I came from a hard knock life. These women used to scare me. (laughs) Different type of life that I was like, 
And but no one loved them and no one fostered into it. Like seriously, I was looking at some pictures the other day just from the program. But what I did is I would volunteer and I would go here in Atlanta, um, Mary House Freedom Hall. It's a women's shelter for women and their children that are coming out of drug abuse, coming out of jail, coming out of prison, like real prison. Um, and I would go in and I teach them job skills, like how to conduct yourself in an interview, how to open up a bank account when you have a direct deposit for your account, how to do a resume, how to um, pre prepare for a job interview. And we would go and it was an 18 week course and I would spend this time with the women for two hours um, twice a week. And it was just, I feel that it's important to give back. And Job for Life really was, I say that they got so much out of it. I have two students um, that graduated, one young lady. She is so amazing. Maybe you guys should have her on. Yeah. But she's so amazing. She graduated from the program and we stay in contact. And I'm just getting teary eyed thinking about it. And she was a heroin addict from 13 to 20 years old on the streets. And she came to this program and I just took her on. She just took to me and she had been in and out of prison. Just like a whole lot of situations. She graduated the program. I helped her get her driver's license back. Like we wrote letters to this, to the, to this um, county. Like I taught her how to save, put money in an account. She got her son back. She got her license to be a barber. And now she's flourishing. She's like charging $300 for haircuts here in Atlanta. Ooh. And that's no joke. And she, and every time we talked, she was like, you saved my life. She was like, no one came in and ever like just told me that it's not my fault. And it's not a lot of times people's fault of what they go through because you're a product of your environment. Like, but what you do is the difference. And that's how you shift the atmosphere. What you do with your environment in those situations. Toya, we're going to have you on again with her if that works for you. That would be awesome. Oh, Cody, her name is Cody. She would love it. She, um, I did the program twice and she came back and spoke to some of the women that graduated. And like, if you hear her stories, I'm like, God, I went through a hard life, but I'm like, how did you survive? <laughs> how did you survive? And like to see her with her son and it's just a beautiful thing. So I give back to women because somebody gave to me. I had strong women in my life, right? And I feel like that's where you break the poverty level. And I feel like, honestly, when Paul called me to do this podcast, this is where you start having those real conversations where it's authentic. Like, I can talk to you all openly about this because I don't feel judged. And I feel like it's an opportunity that someone needs to hear this. And yeah, guess what? There is definitely discrimination in corporate America. I don't care what anyone says, period. It is what it is but you run into great people. You run into great people. I have a Tom Greco and a Ron Gregory that gave me a foundation. So I didn't experience a lot of what a lot of other people experience in corporate America because I had them. Um, then I ran into great friends and now I'm able to give it back to women that may never have the chance. And I have a great daughter who does the same thing. She's 25 years old and she's like flourishing. At 25, I was doing none of the things she's doing. So I see her and I'm like, damn, I just <laughs> yeah that's very powerful wisdom i wanted to ask one more question about about your your corporate um experience when you did run into those injustices and you saw that you were being treated unfairly you saw somebody else was being treated unfairly um how did you direct your energy was it more like i need to call this out and address this problem or 
for example, you know, banging on the table and swearing a lot. Um, w- would you call out that double standard and say, hey, you guys can do this and it's fine? Or did you, did you instead devote your energy to kind of working around it and still play the game and move up the ladder without being directly confrontational? So I learned to be quiet. I really learned to shut down, right? And that's the wrong, and I will tell anyone, that's the wrong thing to do. You, you don't have to fight every battle, but there's something you have to stand up for yourself and you stand up for others. So in the beginning to your, to answer, no, like I wouldn't say anything. And I was so self-conscious because I didn't have the doctorate degree and I didn't have the experiences and they weren't inviting me to play golf. And I wasn't spending the weekends with their families and we weren't having those things, right? So I didn't feel worthy enough and I didn't feel validated. So I would shut down and I would take it and I was thankful. I was thankful that I was in a leadership, a management position. And I was thankful that, you know, they let me work on projects and do things, right? So I was in that state. But now, like, definitely, when I see those things or I see it for myself or I'm experiencing it, I'm very confident to say, like, hey, let's have a meeting. Let's talk about this. Like, you made me feel this way. And let me express to you, like, how I want you to talk to me. And the funny thing apart, I have to tell you the story. So after everybody left, new management came in and I had to do that, right? So there's still some old people there and we were on a meeting and somebody was talking to me really, really, really rash. And again, here it goes, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I've learned that I don't have to level set in that that hostile environment because it's just going to take it to a next level. Um, But I've learned to make sure it never happens again. So after that meeting, like, and everybody knew I was upset. But I went down to his office. He was like, you can sit down. And I'm like, no, I won't sit down. But this is what I'll say. You will never speak to me like that again in a public or a private setting. I said, you, and I was, and I mean, I was the angry black woman. I was upset, but I wanted him to know, like, no, I don't care. I said, tell me what you're going to manage about this project that I'm not. Tell me. And he couldn't. He was like, no, it's just because I have a lot of heat coming down. I said, you will never talk to me like that again. And if you want to have a meeting every morning about it, you have a meeting and you drive it. I said, but if you're going to trust me to drive it, then let me drive it and trust that I'm going to get it done. And he was like, I'm sorry. And literally this is an old Toyo would never. And I called my boyfriend and he was like, do you want to quit? I said, no, I'm not going to quit. He was like, he can't talk to you like that. I was like, he's not going to talk to me like that. And he was like, when I got home, he was like, are you upset? I'm like, no. I said, because I promise you, he will never speak to me like that again, ever. And he will never speak to anyone else like that again. And that was so freeing to me. Because remember when I said earlier, it wasn't personal. So I'm not mad at him. I'll still talk to him. We could still drink tea in the break room because it's nothing personal, right? So oh, I would never allow anyone to treat me like that. And that's because I know my value and I know what I bring. And if I see some, and I've taken up for so many people at the job, I'm like, hey, you don't have to talk to her like that. You don't have to talk to him like that because I feel like it's important and there's a time and a place for everything, right? So I'm not going to the CEO pointing my finger. I'm not calling him out on a meeting, but I'm definitely going to let him know, like, I know you see me. You need to hear me. And we need to have a level of respect. And we don't have to like each other, right? But we def- you, you will definitely respect me. And yeah, 
no in the beginning, but now, like, yeah, like, I don't have anything to lose. Like, my daughter's graduated college, have my business. Like, I don't have anything to lose. Don't get me wrong. I need my job, <laughs> but I don't have anything to lose. And I know that I add value in the same way that I created this job in this space for me. I feel really confident that I can create that same space on ground. Mm, that's powerful. So uh, I'm going to ask you the fun question or Daniel, do you want to ask the question? Sure. I can ask it. Okay. So let's say you are uh, 25 years old and you, you have no responsibilities to speak of. So you're not married. You don't have kids and you have a decision between two different things. On the one hand, you can join the military, uh, any branch that you want and serve in the military for four years, potentially getting deployed, just um, spend four years in service. The other option is to uh, write your own comedy routines and go and deliver your bits every week at, a, at an open mic comedy club somewhere for six months. Which would you do? Comedy club, I'm funny. I, like, I <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm funny, yeah. I'm about to stand on the stage and give you guys my jokes, make you laugh, like, yeah. Oh yeah, I can already, I, I feel like I saw that coming. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But the funny part is, like, when I was younger, before I, even after I had my daughter, I was going to go into the Army. So Really? If you would have left the deployed out, I would have been on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'm going, in, I'm going to make you guys laugh. Yep. That's great. <laughs> so it sounds like you could have gone either way, though. Yeah, if he would have left the deployed out, I probably would have said when in the military. But because he said I have to get deployed, and, like, you know, I'm scary. Yeah, no. <laughs> all right right on right. Like. cool so toya i i don't what year was this might have been 2017 something like that i had mentioned to you that uh, i needed to do something around the holidays to just get my wife away from that's not what he mentioned mm -mm. Huh? don't take credit paul this is how it went <laughs> no see he's trying to take my credit already. <laughs> no, no, it's, hey, it's just a memory problem <laughs> Daniel, see, I stand up for myself, right? Look at that. Yeah. Told you. Exhibit Listen. A. So, Pa and I were sitting in his office, and I was asking him, like, what are you going to do this weekend? He was like, oh, me and my wife going to go to Williamsburg and go shopping for the kids for Christmas. Now and I remember. I said, so what are you going to get your wife for Christmas? And he was like, I don't know. She could get what she wants. And I'm like, Pa, you leave your wife there all the time with those kids. Da -da -da -da. Like, you need to do something for her. He was like, like, what's it? Like, what? I said, I'm going to plan to do a whole weekend. I got it. I said, she's going to love you. He was like, oh, God, like, don't do too much. I said, what's the budget? He was like, Toya, don't break me. I said, no, okay, okay, okay. So he didn't give me a budget. I said, I'm going to make it nice and very intimate. He was like, well, we got to go to Williamsburg. We got to get the kids together. And I was like, okay, we'll get the kids. So I was like, all right, Pa. So I called this. I said, have you guys ever did pottery? And he was like, huh? So I said, okay, I got it. So I called this pottery place, and I was like, hey, I have these people they need to do this, this, this. I said, this is, I told him, I was like, this is my, um, my manager. He has to do it. He told me to call for his wife. So I made this whole story up. I'm like, have flowers there for the wife and set them up by themselves. And she's like, okay, okay. So we set up and they were going to go do like pottery and go paint. And they set up a little section. And I was like, you're going to pick a fancy restaurant for you to go eat. Paul's like, no, man, don't do fancy. I'm like, Paul, listen, you can't sit at a table you guys got to sit at the bar, like with music. You got to act like you're on a date. He was like, I don't want to do fancy. I don't want to get dressed up. Like, <laughs> he did not want to be fancy. So I was like, okay. So I was looking at all these restaurants and I found a restaurant 
And I was like, Paul, this is what you do. You're going to go home when you get off the plane. You go stop, get a card. You're going to give your wife one flower. And I said, you're going to just leave, put it when she gets in the car. She has to open it up. And I said, pack your wife's bag. He was like, hell no. Like, I'm not packing her stuff. If I leave something out, her makeup or something, it's going to be over. Like, no, she needs to pack her own stuff. I'm like, okay. So they act like they're going to Williamsburg. And he has the card. Did you get the card? I did. Yes, ma'am. So he had the card and she opens it up. And she's like, oh, we're going to have a weekend getaway or whatever. So she goes upstairs. Uh, to Toya, she was super excited. <laughs> she was Not surprised. 90% of that was due to you. And then I, yes. I, just, I just had to show up. I was the other person. Yes, he just had to show up. Like we had the hotel. And I'm like, Paul, we got a hotel with a balcony. You got to order room service, all of this stuff. So he's like, Toya, this is sounding real expensive. <laughs> so wow. Rises there, takes her away to Williamsburg. They go do arts and crafts, and then they go have dinner, and they have like a nice night at the hotel and a nice balcony coffee in the morning. So I like saved Paul's marriage. Like, <laughs> right. So, of it, but I saved the marriage. That that was probably <laughs> the most thoughtful uh, romantic weekend we've ever had together, and it had very little to do with me. <laughs> and does Lisa yeah. know that? Oh yeah, yeah. Paul was honest. He was honest. He gave me my credit. Yeah, you oh. talked to her that weekend, right? Yeah, I talked to her. Yeah, yeah. Yep. We were we were halfway through the weekend, and I said, I I, I feel obligated to call Latoya <laughs> and let, her, let you tell her how uh, awesome you're. Uh, yeah. Time you're, the awesome time you're having. Yeah. That, and by the way, real friend. The painted pottery deals. Uh, we hang them on our Christmas tree every year. Yeah, because they, I, oh, that was the thing. I said, you guys got to make an ornament so they could have it every year. Like, it has to mean something. Like, everything has to mean something. We're creating moments here. Toya was about 100 times more thoughtful than I typically am about all of it. Oh. Yeah, wow. by, by the way, she could probably help you, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, do you have a girlfriend? Do you need help? Yes, ma'am. Yes to both <laughs> answers. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, we're actually, it's kind of the other way around right now, because at the end of next week, she is taking me to uh, an Airbnb out in Western Virginia somewhere. She didn't, she oh, hasn't told me where, because yeah. it's our awesome. anniversary weekend. Oh, yeah. good. Okay, Daniel, so what are you going to do when you get there? You I don't have something to you. She she already took you here, Daniel. You got to take it up here. Like, what are you going to do? He doesn't know. He's a man. <laughs> Daniel. I'm gonna send you a text message. I'll plan it all out for you. I yeah, hit me up. I, I have some ideas. <laughs> so you gotta think of like what makes you all you. Like what like what how did you guys meet? Like what is the one thing that you like said that you would only want to do experience a first with her? Gotta think deep. Women like we think like that. Like my boyfriend hates it. I'm always like, oh, we're gonna be bonding. He's like, why does everything have to be bonding? <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I said, I wanted him to come upstairs. I said, babe, we can tell them finding love after 40 is real. Like, my boyfriend is 44 years old. He never, ever had a real girlfriend. And he never lived with anyone. Ever. So, like, now this is a whole life change for him to share. Wow. <laughs> I said, you could come up here and tell him how I'm driving you crazy. He was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, you, and you, you really go deep when you think about this stuff. I really, really feel, and I've seen so much in life, but like every part of your life, you're creating a moment. 
So even like with your girlfriend, like these are moments that you'll create once. And if it lasts forever, like these are moments you will recreate sharing with your children. And if it's not, you will have those moments to make sure you don't make the same mistakes. And I just feel it's important. Like even with Paul, like he only seen his wife on the weekends. Like these are moments that you need to cherish with her. And when you look at those ornaments, those were just your moments. Just you and her, like no kids. Oh, every time I put them on the tree, I, I have awesome memories of that week. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important. Hey, Dan Daniel, I'm not kidding. Um, Toy Toy's got time that she would love to uh, help you out. Yeah, but I just think, Daniel, like you got to think about like when you look back at these moments, like what do you want to remember? Like what's the one, like I always, I'm really big on like creating first, right? So this is my first podcast. So like I will remember this. I'm like, oh, I was looking crazy. Did I really have to do my hair like that just to prove a point? Like I will have these moments, but I can't wait to share it with my daughter. She's texting me like, are you done? When are they going to post it? <laughs> I, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to say, Mr. Paul said you can come on. I'm going to make you famous. <laughs> cool. So who are, should we go into, uh, let's see, real estate? Is that, let me see. Yeah, let's talk real estate. <laughs> oh, right. So I tried to buy a house last summer in Richmond and uh, it didn't work out um, and because I, I felt like things were just way too expensive, at least, at least up here in Richmond. I don't know what it's like down in Atlanta, but you're a real estate agent. Tell us about your real estate career. Well, Daniel, I can help you out in so many ways. So my best friend is a realtor in Richmond for 24 years. So when you get ready to buy that house, you got to make sure you use it. She would have made All right. So that's her plug. <laughs> um, so yeah, so real estate is really a passion of mine. And again, it goes back to just servicing people. So Daniel's thinking the market is expensive, but the market is tight. It is a seller's market right now across the board, not just in Atlanta, but I know the Richmond market fairly well. Um, yeah, so you should, probably should have bought last year because that house that you were looking for last year, say it was 200000 it's probably about 210 220 now. So you definitely should have got in and rates are super, super low right now. So even, and I think that's one thing people don't realize, like the lower the rate is, the lower your monthly payment is. So say if you get a house for 200000 and the interest rate is 5%, but you get the same house at 200000 and the interest rate is at 3%, that's a three $400 difference a month just on the, in that interest rate. So mm. the rates are really low, Daniel. This is probably the time you need to be looking. Okay. Spoken like a true real estate agent. <laughs> I <Yeah>. love it. <laughs> uh, so you say it comes from, you know, your passion for ser servicing people. So um, like, when did you, when did you start getting involved in it? So I've been in real estate. Like I said, my best friend is a real estate agent in Virginia. So I was working alongside her, learning the ropes, learning the market, learning how to navigate um, things of that nature, but I didn't really start heavily getting into real estate and doing it on my own until I moved here to Georgia. Um, and it does truly come from my passion of servicing people as a whole. So again, right? So one thing I'm really big on is everything is intentional. So a couple of reasons why I started getting into real estate. One, like I'm very big that you should have a second stream of income. No matter what, I think corporate America and our jobs give us a false sense of security because at any day they can be like, okay, we don't need you. But if you create something of your own, it allows you to have a little bit more control and creates that less stress. Just creating financial security. Plus my daughter went to a private HBCU, so I had to pay for that. So real estate afforded, afforded me an opportunity to send my daughter to school. Um, the second thing is, 
people don't understand every rich person anybody that is rich and wealthy wealthy not rich there's a difference wealthy people own real estate and the reason why is you can make more of anything can't make more land so they can knock down all the houses they want and build all the houses they want but your land is what is your value and it doesn't matter if right now today your land is worth two dollars at some point that land is going to shift the value of the land is going to shift and it's going to be worth something because it's land and people don't get that. So I just realized being wealthy, wealthy people own real estate. So I, that was number three. And the, 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 excuse me, the third part is home ownership is so important. So statistics show that children graduate high school at an 85% rate when their parents are homeowners. Not even about your economic status, but the owning of a home because it creates, the, creates stability and familiarity because your teachers know you could you go to the same school you keep the same friend you keep in the same community the same organization so home ownership is a very big driver especially in african minority communities the black community hispanic community when you own your home the graduation levels are 85 percent higher to those that don't own homes so that was that's really my driving point for real estate is i want people to own homes and know that no matter what, you can own a home and afford it. And that's where, like in Atlanta, where I focus, is a lot on first-time homebuyers. And the crazy part about it is I have a lot of single moms that are my clients. Um, and I love it. And I get excited. So I sold a million-dollar home, and I sold a $99,000 home. Um, and I love that first-time homebuyer because it's that sense of accomplishment. And it's that win. And like, I'm there with them and I'm fighting for them. And it's that like, guess what? I save my this much money out of each paycheck because I want this home. So that's where real estate, that's that passion for me for real estate. Do you seek out these clients, uh, single mothers and stuff, or, or do they come and find you naturally? Yeah, so I've never done marketing. <laughs> I've never done any marketing. I'll post on Instagram and social media. But honestly, all of my um, clients have been word of mouth. And I think it's just like, I talk to people, I will talk to anyone. And when I get, and I love a story, right? So that goes back to marriage. I love love. And I just, and I want you to win. So when I meet people and they're like, yeah, like you're a real estate agent. I wanted to buy a home. Like I'm in it with them. I have some clients that I've worked with them for two years because their credit wasn't ready, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to help you with your credit. And I have my real estate friends like, okay, their budget is going to be 150 and you're spending all this time. You could have sold eight houses by now. I'm like, this one right here is going to make the difference. So I don't seek them out. Um, I've been very fortunate, and I'm one of a, the top producing real estate agents here in Atlanta. Um, I was in a, my last broker. We had about 2,200 agents, and I was actually number 10 in the office for two years. I was number eight and number 10. And I don't market people. And I think it's just like what you put out is what you get. <laughs> I really, really feel that way. And I love it. So help me out here. You uh, Are you real estate agent on the side or was that your full-time job? Shame on you, Daniel. There's no such thing as a part-time agent. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> real estate full-time and I do my full-time career. Yes, Daniel, both. See? <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. And it's doable, right? My clients don't feel a difference. I treat them the same. If they call me, if they text me, 
um, I prioritize them because this is the biggest purchase they're going to make. So, and I laugh about it, but there's no such thing as a part-time agent because you won't be successful. And I spend long hours. Like after I finish with you all, I'm going to go send some comps. I have two investors that I'm working with. So I, I put in just as much as someone that's done it full time. And, and people are always like, you're so good at this. Like you make just as much doing this as something else. Like, why don't you do it full time? I never want real estate ever to be my bread and butter. I don't want to lose the passion. And I never want to be so, I need to close this month. Or I wouldn't work with those people it takes two years to do. You know what I'm saying? Because I would need to worry about closing. But I have the flexibility to be able to say, guess what? I'm going to help you for two years. Get your credit. We're going to work through this. Call me. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you that. If this was my bread and butter, I would leave a whole lot of people behind. And I never want that. That's really cool. Yeah, if You have like, you know, the, the idea of, of having all these different options of, you know, you have your job and then you have the real estate so that when everything is dandy and you have your job and you have the real estate, like you don't necessarily, you aren't tied to them, you know, ball and chain style, because if one goes down, you have the other. And, and it's a great place to be when you've got all those different options. Yeah, I agree. I agree. What's it been like the last six weeks in Atlanta uh, with real estate in particular? So honestly, the market has not changed how we do business has, right? So like for myself, I had to tell my buyers, um, I can't take you out. But what I will do is we can do virtual tours. So a lot of agents adjust it very quickly. And technology has allowed us to do so. Like instead of just putting pictures up for people to look at, they've done virtual tours. They've used 3D technology. They've used drones to be able to show that experience real time. And that's one of the things that I've leveraged. Um, I have a listing right now, and that's, I created a video, interactive with some music, you know, those type of things, so people can still look and show my property, and with my buyers, I've done the same. Um, I've definitely adjusted. Usually, I'm out and about, and um, I've just really pulled back and just tried to do things different, but as far as the market, um, we haven't seen a big shift. Interest rates are so low, buyers are still buying, because they know this is the time to strike. Right. And sellers aren't selling because the prices, to Daniel's point, may be too high and they're not going to find their home is for two hundred thousand. But they're going to look to upgrade to four hundred. And that is just not allowed out there. Um, as far as the market, like it's still going and flourishing, to be honest with you, it's just how we had to shift and maneuver in reference to keeping business going. You do a lot more talking and consulting. I've been doing like my buyer consulting consultations over the phone and instead of giving them their gift I send them their gift um, and things of that nature so still staying engaged so when you say everybody should own like ideally everybody should own their own or own real estate to have multiple streams of income um, do you mean just just the one house that they live in or do you mean more than one property that they can get like rent money off of for example yeah, so like I definitely feel it's doable. Um, you should definitely have your primary residence, but if you're in a position and once you own your primary residence, I feel that you are, and we can talk about that, to have rental properties. Right now, um, my best friend and I, we just bought our first rental property down in Macon, Georgia. It has not been fun. It is a lot of work, but it's definitely worth it and affordable. And for us, it was more about creating safe, clean housing for those at that poverty level. And we've been able to do it. Our tenant, like, you would think she lives in a mansion and she's so thankful. So I definitely feel like once you purchase your first home, 
Um, you can use that first home and the equity in your first home to be able to start purchasing some investment properties to create that generational wealth that we're talking about and that envelope money coming in. Um, is it easy? No, but is it doable? Yes, people do it all day, every day. People just don't realize it and don't know where to start because, for example, if you buy your house, you have $50,000 of equity, you don't know what the market's going to do this year from next year, right? Why not take that guaranteed $50,000 that you have and go buy you another property that's going to generate you seven, $800 a month? Right on. I love it. Hey, Toya, so I have had a blast talking to you tonight. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we have at least three more episodes with you, you and your daughter. <laughs> your best friend is one, and then you and Cody is the I'm going to be a co-host on the show. <laughs> yeah, you're going to you're gonna have to get in line, Toya. I'm going to be a co-host on the show. <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, you're a remarkable woman. Uh, and it's really been awesome to hear you and all the wisdom that you have to offer. Thanks. Thanks. It was a pleasure meeting you, Daniel. I'm going to um, send you some great ideas for your um, anniversary weekend. We're going <laughs> to so set the bar low. You know, we'll just work up each year. When are you coming to Richmond, Detroit? Uh, are you going to tell me when If you enjoyed this episode, come find us on Facebook or Instagram and let us know what you think. We'd love to connect. Thanks for listening.